You're listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsu Mellish. On today's episode, we speak to Professor Piers Ludlow, the head of the International History Department at the London School of Economics. His main research interests lie in the history of Western Europe since 1945, in particular the historical roots of the integration process and the development of the EU. Today we will cover the US relationship with the three major Western powers of the Cold War, the United Kingdom, France and West Germany. So Piers, with the episode what I want to do is chart the changing relationship between America and the Western European powers throughout the Cold War. So let's start with the era immediately after the Second World War as the seeds of the Cold War are developing where the US is playing a major role in rebuilding the European powers and those three major powers France, Britain and Germany end up in very different positions. You have the United Kingdom a war ally. You have France occupied in its mainland for much of the war and then a newly divided West Germany who was a war enemy who's now being occupied by the USA. So could you give the listeners an overview of how America related to those three powers differently at the end of World War II and how that then shaped US foreign policy through the 40s and 50s? Okay, no, I think that's a, so. I think the contrasts you draw are very uh, important and 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 significant. Um, and I think on the whole, this is a period where the alliance dynamics can be seen as successful. But I think the first point, perhaps, to stress is there is absolutely nothing, in a sense, given about U.S. long-term commitment to Europe during this period. I think if you'd asked an American voter if you'd asked an American leading politician of either Democrat or Republican stripe, uh, whether they perceived uh, America's role in Europe as being one that endured, um, they would have uh, said definitely not. And they would have looked absolutely horrified and aghast had you told them that 50 years on American troops would still be based in Europe and that this was uh, that they would within a within four years form an alliance that uh, in the form of NATO that of course lasts until today. Uh, that would have been utterly horrifying. So the the, um, the American inclination. Uh, entirely understandable inclination straight after the Second World War is we've been over there, we've done a job, um, mission accomplished, uh, let's get the go- let's let bring the boys back home. And, and it's entirely logical because who are those boys? They're, they are people's sons, they're people's fathers, they're people's uh, partners, um, and they're a workforce the United States needs. There are all sorts of absolutely basic political, economic, and social reasons why there is no incentive for, for the United States to involve itself in European affairs in the long term. It's also the case, of course, that if you look at the map of post-war Europe, it isn't immediately apparent either that it's going to be uh, the Cold War divided continent that will quickly emerge, but or that there's going to be a, a fundamental power vacuum. Yes, of course, um, the, 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 there was a gap, there was a hole where German power had been, uh, and therefore you have the occupation of Germany and the uncertainty that that, that, that brings about. Um, but in a way, there are powers of plenty within the area to fill that gap. After all, if you think of the, 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 the four policemen, um, in other words, the, the embryonic uh, 
permanent members of the Security Council. Both the British and the Russians have a direct involvement. Um, and um, the French, to the sort of, they're, they're not one of the four policemen, but they're kind of the fifth policeman, if you want, the, uh, about to become a P5 member. They too have a major stake in the continent. Okay, they had had an even more difficult war than the others, uh, but nevertheless, they are uh, in 1944 45 back on the sort of right side, back in Paris, etc. So, so you can understand the American presupposition that they're commitment to post-war Europe was likely to be one that is is pretty short term. Uh, and that was very much the, the, the guiding assumption. Uh, there was a recognition that there was a short term humanitarian crisis that needed to be addressed uh, and using mechanisms like UNRWA and these various other sort of short term um, amounts of money. But there's absolutely no conception about a long term commitment, either economic or military. Um, and so neither the Marshall Plan nor NATO as it emerges are in a sense given. So I think that's the first thing to say. And therefore the, this early period of, of alliance dynamics is remarkable for the way in which uh, this change of American position, this growing realization uh, on the American part, but aided and abetted by a lot of advocacy from the uh, European countries too, which uh, enables the Americans to transition from this assumption that they're going to get the hell out of there to an acceptance that actually they're, they're in for, for the long term. That is something that is fascinating to study. Um, it's one where I think the strongest card perversely, paradoxically, that the Europeans can play. And here, of course, it's not just the British and the French or the Germans that matter. It's also some of the smaller European countries, is weakness. Uh, the biggest thing that the Europeans can do, in a sense, to convince the Americans that they need to stay involved is to plead weakness, to demonstrate their weakness, and to persuade the Americans that European weakness is dangerous for long-term American prospects. Uh, now, weakness, in a sense, is perhaps most obvious in the case of uh, episodes like um, the Truman Declaration, which we all know, or Truman Doctrine, which is shaped by the British admission that it could no longer handle the situation in Greece and Turkey. But I it's not just that episode. I think throughout the, the run-up to the Marshall Plan, the run-up to NATO, the Europeans, in a sense, have to persuade the Americans that uh, they are too weak to cope by themselves, that they need an American commitment, uh, that they need an American uh, involvement uh, that is an ongoing one. Initially, that involvement is going to be primarily economic. Uh, and of course, the Marshall Plan is therefore the, the key instrument. Um, and it's also meant to be very short term. So the thing about the Marshall Plan is it's a colossal amount of American money um, and it's organized in a, in a clever multilateral fashion, so it avoids some of the difficulties of rivalry for American support that had happened after World War I. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is uh, only meant to endure for four years. It's meant to last from 1948 to 51, basically. Um, and so it's, it's meant to be a short-term boost. It's meant to pick Europe up from the floor, get it back on its feet, and then Europe can walk again and look after itself and no longer need American assistance. So you get that initial success in persuading the Americans to do that. But then you also have, uh, in the years that follow, a further European success. And I think it can be seen as a European success in persuading the Americans that, uh, that they need to be involved, not just economically, uh, but militarily as well, 
uh, and that the commitment is not just a commitment of the three, four year window that was perceived by the Marshall Plan, but, in, but is instead one which will last for years, possibly decades. Uh, uh, and indeed, as we know, has endured up until today. So I think there is a there is a huge sort of the dynamics of that are fascinating. It's a it's a game involving weakness. It's a game involving persuasion. It's a game involving constituencies of American voters who have particular susceptibilities and interests in in parts of Europe. Um, America is still perhaps it was at this period of its history more than it is today still a country where much of the population certainly much of the uh, sort of the decision-making class still trace their ancestry back relatively recently to European uh, emigrants and as a result have there are ties of affinity with Britain but also with France with Germany with Italy crucially with Poland which of course gives an extra Cold War dynamics now of course overarching all of this you also have what's going on in the Eastern Bloc and I'm not saying that had it not been for Russian actions or without what Stalin was doing and Stalin's personality and the threat that he seemed to emanate any of this would have happened so it's clearly about a cold, a cold war process but I do think if we look at this purely in terms of kind of superpower dynamics and see what America does in terms of engaging with Europe only as a response to what the Soviet Union is doing in its block, I think we do miss a dimension. I think there is a West-West part of this story that is quite important to uh, recall. I think that's really interesting and it's important to remember that America of all of the Western powers, particularly in its earlier in the 40s and the 50s, had the most isolationist trend amongst its general population. So there is a lot of work to be done by the Europeans to convince them that there's any value in maintaining its long-term commitments around the rest of the world. I think one of the interesting turning points for this is the Korean War, which is a major foreign policy event, but also for the European alliance because there was a significant pressure by the Europeans that the US should intervene to stop North Korea being able to fully annex and integrate South Korea, because it was felt that if they couldn't convince the US to intervene to stop that happening in Korea, then what's to say that the US actually won't bother to intervene to help if a Soviet invasion occurred throughout Western Europe, if they tried to take West Germany or carry on all the way to the edge of Europe. So how does European concerns about their own security affect South Korea? And is there in many ways a tail wagging the dog situation where these weaker European powers are trying to drive US foreign policy in a particular direction? Um, no, I think that's a very, that's a very good question. I, I think the Korean episode is fascinating. It's fascinating partly because, sort of perversely, I, I think now viewing this as historians of the Cold War with the benefit of hindsight, we can see the Korean War as in a sense the moment where the Cold War clearly goes global. So it had always had a global dimension. Uh, but but this is a non-European battle. We now know, of course, it's the first of many. It's in a sense uh, foreshadows Vietnam and, and other confrontations in what we now call the global South. So we can see this as, uh, as the moment, uh, as a clear trend towards the sort of globalization of the Cold War. But I, I think it's also uh, worth recalling the fundamentally Eurocentric analysis of, I think, certainly European leaders, but also American leaders in this early part of the Cold War. Uh, there is an assumption that the 
that the the key fight is over Europe, that the key territory at risk, in a sense, is Germany. And therefore, there is this strong belief that what is happening in Korea is uh, a, a, a prelude to the real battle that is going to come elsewhere. Uh, that this is the sort of the taste of the appetizer, if you want, for the main course that is going to is going to follow later in the form of pressure on Germany. And so you get this very perverse effect that a, a conflict on the other side of the world, a conflict that, as I said, now we now see as foreshadowing the global Cold War, actually leads to a major reinforcement of the US military commitment to, to NATO. NATO in many ways has two foundations. It has the 1949, when it's founded as a an alliance, yes, but one where the degree of American military commitment is actually not specified in any great detail. Um, th there is not an automaticity about uh, about Article Five, about the Americans intervening as soon as the Soviets in, uh, as soon as the Soviets threaten Western Europe. The movement from that to the kind of really rather. Um, tight military alliance that emerges in the fourth course of the 50s and 60s, that would not have happened or certainly would not have happened as quickly without Korea. And so you get this perverse situation that this conflict that in a sense ought to be diverting attention away from Europe actually has a short term impact of, of, of multiplying the significance of, of Europe in American eyes and giving European leaders who are, of course, trying to get the Americans more involved, yet another lever, yet another uh, means of, 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 of trying to get their way, trying to persuade the Americans to commit themselves more, to spend more, to devote to promised troops, to guarantee security all the more strongly. So it is a, it's, a, it's bizarre in that sort of we can now see it as a sort of a moment which marks the shift away from Europe of Cold War focus, but in the short to medium term, it's actually a, it's actually something that seems to only increase Europe's centrality to the conflict. One thing that set the USA apart from the other two Western states that were on the Security Council, and particularly in the 50s and the early 60s, is that both France and United Kingdom are still imperial powers during this episode, particularly the United Kingdom which in the early 40s is still occupying a quarter of the globe as a major imperial power. And the USA's relationship to these Anglo-French colonial empires was very much ambiguous and often oriented more around anti-communism than it was around any sort of support for uh, their continuing existence. So how did Britain and France desire to keep their empires after World War II strain and alter the relationship that they had with the United States? And I'm thinking in particular here of Suez, where the United States is strongly opposed to the idea that France and Britain were to act unilaterally to effectively impose imperial control over the Suez Canal. And then Vietnam, where the US is willing to go in to help reinforce the collapsing French empire in Vietnam. So what causes this sort of ambiguous relationship where in some cases it's strongly opposed and in some cases it's willing to support Britain and French colonial efforts around the world? Again, it's a, it's a very good question and a very good contrast you draw um, between the Suez episode and the, and, and the Vietnam episode. I, in many ways, I think Indochina, Vietnam is more representative of, of sort of business as usual and Suez is, is more of the aberration. I think what strikes me when looking at this period is in a sense 
how little the United States lives up to its own anti-imperialist ideals. I, I don't, uh, I'm not saying that the Americans were insincere in their professions about uh, condemning imperialism. I think there is an element of their own identity, which is after all wrapped up with independence from colonial rule. So I think there's a there's sincerity there, but I think it's also the case that the early American administrations, uh, so Truman, but Eisenhower, and even into the sort of Kennedy era, um, tend to prioritize the needs of their European allies, and therefore uh, the, preser the, the preservation of their empires um, as a, a over and above the, the need to kind of be seen to be on the right side of history when it comes to decolonization. I think it begins to shift in the 1960s, largely, I think, because the United States is increasingly aware, A, that the European empires are falling apart anyway, so in a sense they're, 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 they're being written off, but B, that the Soviets are making a big push in the, in, in the third world global south, and therefore if the Americans are constantly being seen as being backing up the European imperialists, uh, then they're going to lose in the court of global opinion, they're going to lose the support of, of many of the newly independent nations. So I think it does shift in the late 50s, early 60s, and perhaps you can see Suez as a harbinger of that. But the pattern in the, the 40s and 50s is remarkably supportive of, of ongoing European imperialism. And indeed, in some ways, the utility of the of the, the, the Europeans to the Americans is connected to their imperial possessions. Uh, these are territories that uh, can be used as bases. These are, these are uh, things that will help Europe regain its own prosperity, or at least that's the belief of the time. We know that in, in fact that doesn't really turn out to work very well, but the Americans want Europe to be able to stand back up on its own feet to look after itself. And they kind of buy into the idea, which is very strongly uh, expressed by the British and, and the French in particular, but also by the Belgians and the Dutch and others who still have uh, colonial territories at this period, that the colonies are integral to their post-war recovery, integral to their post-war prosperity. And given that the United States wants a strong Western Europe, it wants a strong Britain, it wants a strong France, it wants a strong um, uh, Belgium, etc. To the extent that that requires keeping their colonies, well, then the Americans are prepared to go along with that. So, so I think the sort of what is in a way remarkable about the, the, the post-war empire story is the extent to which the Americans acquiesce in the continuation of European empires. Uh, yes, it is true that those empires will fall apart largely because of dynamics internal to the colonies themselves, also to a certain extent changing attitudes in Europe in the medium term. But in the short term, at least, the Americans are quite prepared to go along. And indeed, of course, in the case of, Indo as the case of Indochina reminds us, in certain cases, bankroll and uh, provide massive amounts of material support to enable uh, European countries to fight uh, nationalist forces. Uh, one of the great tricks of the early Cold War from the European point of view is if you could persuade Washington that the, the people you were fighting in a colonial con uh, context were communist, at that stage the Americans would uh, likely come to your uh, assistance and your support. Uh, and so the French managed to get an extraordinary amount of American involvement, um, in, uh, so American support in their fight in, 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 in Indochina. And of course, it starts a process of American involvement in the region, which would ultimately have, uh, would lead on to America's own Vietnam War. 
levels. So it starts a kind of a, a very destructive cycle for the Americans. But I think it does show this perverse, paradoxical American commitments to European imperialism, which rather goes against their rhetoric and their ideals, but I think does reflect the realities of the early Cold War. I think this is another example where Europe was again, because of its weakened position, able to effectively dictate US foreign policy. And there was a lot of, even in the UN, on things like UN Resolution 1514, the Declaration of Granting Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples. The US was one of the very few countries that abstained on that motion, along with France and Britain, under a huge amount of pressure from the United Kingdom that the USA should at least signal its tacit support of the continuation because of fears of anti-communism. And then it's telling that in comparison to, say, cases like Indonesia, where America effectively dropped the idea that the Dutch would be able to continue to hold Indonesia very, very quickly and decided to switch to local allies. And I think that's a big turning point of the later Cold War is this turn away of the US from Europe towards regional allies in in the Middle East, in Africa and in Asia, particularly under Nixon, because you, you get that realisation that this is no longer an effective strategy and you're going to need to start building local capacity. Yeah, no, I think that, that's right. Although, of course, you've also had, by the time you get to the, the later 60s, going into the 70s with Nixon, etc., you're also talking about a period where the European empires have more or less collapsed anyway. Yes, there is ongoing involvement and residual influence France in sub-Saharan Africa, Britain to a certain extent in, in Southeast Asia still and so on. But, but it, by and large, the empire's gone. There's only really the Portuguese empire left and that will become a source of colonial Cold War headaches rather than Cold War strength. But no, I think the Americans switch, switch emphasis pretty much from the, the late 50s, early 60s onwards. So the Kennedy line is already different, but as I mentioned, Suez in a sense is a signal of the way that the Americans are going to go. But what surprises me looking at this, is looking at the Cold War in totality, is how long it takes to get there. Um, in a way, if you'd looked at the equation in 1945 and you'd said, okay, the superpower in the West is going to be a country which has this strong anti-imperialist tradition and rhetoric and set of ideals, you would have said the days are very clearly numbered for the British and French empires, which would have been right, but I think you probably sort of, they, they, they hang on for a remarkably long time. And the extent to which the Americans are directly involved in their, their winding up is actually remarkably little. Uh, more often than not, the Americans help preserve British and French power rather than knocking away the supports underneath it. How did US relationships with Europe wider and in particularly between the US and France change when we get the rise of de Gaulle in France and that shift that France wants to take towards having a more independent pathway, of independent nuclear deterrent, all of these factors which aren't a shift to the east or a shift to, towards communism but a if you like a third way a, a non-us aligned western country well so i think the, the gaullist period is fascinating but it's also fascinating it, it, and it, it is one that the americans find genuinely difficult to negotiate um so i think uh, 
both Kennedy and, and Johnson would almost certainly have agreed that de Gaulle was one of their uh, main sort of uh, sources of headaches and sleepless nights and so on. So he does rattle the Americans in quite an effective way. And France, in a sense, becomes a kind of uh, an institutionalized pain in the ass in terms of, of, of NATO, if I can put it in slightly colloquial <laughs> terms. Um, so, so yes, there is a problem there. But in many ways, I actually find this in a perverse sort of way, I actually would argue that, that the Gaullist challenge is in some ways very useful for, the, for keeping NATO together. Um, let, me, let me explain. Uh, what I think is happening in the uh, late 50s, early 1960s is that NATO is begin, or, or, or the Western alliance more generally, is beginning to have to confront quite a significant uh, underlying structural problem. Uh, and this underlying structural problem comes, sort of, it derives from the fact that as you move into the late 50s and into the 60s, you are no longer talking about a Europe that is down on its luck, that is poor, that is, that is desperate, that is weak, as we were saying earlier, uh, where that had been its crucial calling card. By the time you get to the late 50s into the 60s, you're talking about a Europe which is the fastest growing part of the world economy, uh, a Europe that is in many ways booming economically, but also in terms of its self-confidence and its political, uh, its political confidence. That was going to pose a problem for NATO. After all, the structures of the Atlantic community, if you want to use that term, had been forged in a period where uh, the imbalance of power across the Atlantic was absolutely huge, where the Americans were clearly dominant, where Europe was weak. Uh, coping with a period where Europe was no longer weak, where Europe was coming back, where Europe was trying through the integration process to uh, act collectively at times, where the Germans have cut back as an independent or quasi-independent actor. Uh, all of these things would have posed very, very severe challenges to uh, any form of alliance. And therefore, I do think NATO, in a sense, and, and the Atlantic Alliance or the, the, the Atlantic community more broadly, was heading into choppy waters because of these structural factors, come what may. Enter de Gaulle. Now, on the surface, de Gaulle is, in a way, the embodiment of these problems. Uh, here he is, a Frenchman who has the sort of the guts to stand up to look the Americans in the eye and say, no, you will not do that in the passant pas, not quite, but, um, but, but who is who, prepared to take on the Americans, to, to throw them out of, uh, uh, out of Paris or throw NATO headquarters out of Paris to say American troops aren't welcome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly rattle the Americans, cause panic, cause a degree of, of alarm. So if you want a, a, an epitome of um, two politicians winding each other up, about how bad the situation is. Read the transcripts of the Macmillan de Gaulle conversation, uh, the Macmillan uh, Kennedy conversations in the aftermath of de Gaulle's uh, veto of the first British application, and of course also rejection of the Nassau nuclear deal. Uh, and of the American multilateral force in January 1963. So Macmillan and Kennedy managed to convince themselves that this guy is basically totally, uh, he's about to destroy everything, he's Samson, he's bringing down the temple, uh, he's going to switch sides, he's going to join with the Russians and so on. So it's, it's totally over the top. 
Um, but it is a classic example of how politicians can, in a sense, panic and wind each other up when they talk, particularly perhaps on the telephone, uh, which uh, is still a tool that they're all getting used to using for the first time in, in, the, in the early 1960s. So de Gaulle certainly causes a panic. But if you look at it, again, with the benefit of hindsight, I think you can arguably say that de Gaulle has this perverse effect of lessening the structural challenge to NATO. Because there are a lot of other European countries, not just the French, who are increasingly chaffing at aspects of the Atlantic Alliance. They don't like the new American security posture. They don't like flexible response. Uh, the implications of the flexible response policy is, after all, that the Americans will tightly control how they respond to a Soviet military incursion, and they will decide when to go nuclear, when to use when to use conventional weapons, what degree of response. And because that involves centralizing control in Washington, because that involves, in a sense, pushing the Europeans out of the collective decision, uh, then that, uh, th that sort of disenfranchises Europe, makes Europe feel less safe. There is, a, there is a real debate in this time, and it's not just in France, about whether an American president would uh, push the nuclear button to save Hamburg. Um, the, the famously, in the run-up to the Second World War, you get this debate about whether you would die for Danzig. Uh, well, would you die for Hamburg? In the, is the kind of the, the 1950s, 1960s equivalent of, of this. So I think there's a real question mark, a real agonizing about the American commitment that goes on in, 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 in Italy, in Germany, even in Britain uh, during this period. Um, but and that could, under different circumstances, have crystallized into quite a, a potent challenge to the NATO structures and potentially, therefore, to the stability and solidity of the Atlantic community more widely. The fact that it doesn't happen, I think, is in some ways explicable by the fact that the, the lead spokesman for this discontent is de Gaulle. But de Gaulle is so extreme, de Gaulle is so intent on his own and his own national self-aggrandizement that he becomes impossible to follow. Um, there's a classic moment at the in 1963 after the January crisis where an Italian diplomat uh, comments that uh, de Gaulle's behavior or, or, or that the, 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 when it comes down to it, Italy is forced to choose between France and, and the United States. Um, and in those circumstances, there is only one answer. And he uses a Sicilian proverb, um, the best boss is he who is richest and furthest away. Uh, well, the Americans are richer than the French and they're further away than the French. And so from an Italian point of view, it makes sense to go with the, with the distant and rich boss rather than going with the, 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 the mini boss on your doorstep in the form of de Gaulle. And, and because he makes the palatable, he makes the kind of choice of a European challenge to NATO so extreme and so unpalatable, a lot of the moderates who in a sense could have broken either way, break overwhelmingly with the Americans. And so perversely, I think NATO is actually solidified by the Gaulist challenge rather than weakened. And something like the reinvention of itself through the Harmel Doctrine of the late 1960s, uh, the way in which it gives itself a role in détente and so on, 
all of that is uh, in a way a kind of reaction to de Gaulle. It's not Gaullism, it's not going along with de Gaulle, but it is responding to some of the same stimuli as are pushing de Gaulle, uh, but doing so in a fashion that is compatible with and harmonious with continuing American leadership. That's really interesting. And more broadly, moving on to the issue of European integration, how did the US view the integration of Europe? Was it always met with approval by the US or were there ever concerns that a more unified Europe ends up becoming a meaningful competitor to the USA that can start exercising its own power in a way that the individual nation states didn't have the comparative power to be able to do so? Well, I think, so what is remarkable is how slow that latter development that you just described is in appearing. Um, the Americans at the early stages of the process are overwhelmingly favorable, and indeed in many ways, without their support, I think you can make a strong case that uh, it would have been much harder and possibly impossible for um, European integration to get off the ground. So they're, they're the big cheerleaders uh, behind the Schuman plan, they are the, uh, the, the huge cheerleaders behind the abortive European defence community. They are very strongly in favour of the EEC and help smooth its passage through GATT, which is the forerunner of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and so on. So the Americans are enormously supportive early on. It's only really when you go into the sort of Nixon-Kissinger period, you begin to see the appearance of a real level of ambivalence. Um, it's only, and in a way, that is a symptom of America's own weakness and uncertainties in in that era. This is, after all, the era where the defeat in Vietnam is becoming apparent. It's the era where the American confidence in their own economic superiority is being challenged and is fading. Uh, and I think there is a vulnerability that comes to the surface there. But what is remarkable is how slow that vulnerability is in appearing. So in theory, at least, there should have been a kind of self-preservation that kicks in on the American side very early on. So why, why encourage countries uh, to unite and create a potential rival to you in the future? But in a way that that is very slow to appear, it's not really there at all under Truman and Eisenhower. It's there very, very weakly under Kennedy, but I think he's still pretty certain that he can he can dominate matters. And so it really is only at the tail end of the 60s and going into the 70s that that it appears. And even then, it's, it's not dominant. So that both Nixon and even Kissinger are on record as saying they're basically supportive of European integration. Yeah, they have problems when the Europeans start getting too involved in political business, particularly in areas like the Middle East, where the United States wants to run things on its own. Hence, in part, some of the spats with Kissinger uh, in the early 1970s. But even there, actually, what I find is remarkable is if you then look into the, the Ford years, the Carter years, the Reagan years, is actually a relatively effective modus vivendi develops. And, and the Americans come to term with the fact that when they're dealing with Europe, they will be dealing with this sort of, kind of strange hybrid creature that sometimes does stuff together, sometimes comes up with joint positions, and at other times acts through its component uh, member states. So sometimes you're dealing with London, sometimes you're dealing with Paris or Bonn, at other times you're dealing with Brussels or you're dealing with, with, with Europe collectively. And actually, I think, although there are birth pains, difficulties when that system first begins to emerge, 
uh, of, of foreign policy coordination because it's very much something that starts in the early 70s at precisely this moment with Nixon Kissinger. What is remarkable by the, the latter stages of the Cold War is how much the Americans have kind of internalized this, they've accepted it, sort of the Europeans are not always the perfect partners, sometimes they're, they're too soft on the Russians, hence the frustrations of the early Reagan period. But nevertheless, if you look at the Carter period, if you look at the Reagan period, they kind of accepted that Europe will discuss these things collectively, that they will try and come up with a common position. And the Americans have got used to lobbying in Brussels, as well as lobbying in Bonn, lobbying in Rome, lobbying in Paris, lobbying in London, because that's the way you do it. Uh, and it just becomes part of the system. And that, if I can bring in a bigger point here, leads me on to, I think, one of the, the really crucial things that we need to see about the Western Alliance. Uh, and I think this is one where you can draw a very, very important, and I would argue, deeply significant uh, contrast with the Eastern Bloc. What it strikes me, so one of the kind of real strengths of the Western Alliance system um, in the Cold War is the way in which it, it learns to adapt to change. It learns to accommodate, for instance, the rebirth of Germany as an important player in its own right, as an, a, as an economic uh, major power and as a military significant power and as a foreign policy actor in its own right, it accommodates that. It accommodates the, 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 the re-emergence of European self-confidence. It accommodates the emergence of European collective decision-making. And yes, there are tensions, yes, there are problems, yes, there are spats, but basically the system adapts. Contrast that to the Eastern Bloc, um, and there you see a system that doesn't adapt. Uh, when the Chinese get too big for the uh, Sino-Soviet alliance, the Sino-Soviet alliance breaks and China in effect changes sides on the Cold War. Uh, and so I think in, in many ways, if you look at the Cold War in totality, you can say that one of the huge strengths of the Western system is its capacity to change, its capacity to adapt, its capacity to cope with um, differing dynamics, differing stages of prosperity and of development in its component parts, and to flex, not to break. It, 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 sometimes the flexing is difficult, is painful, but nevertheless it does flex and it stays together and it's still a solid block in 1989-90 as the Cold War comes to an end, just as much as it had been at the beginning of the Cold War. Let's focus now on that on that country you mentioned, which is West Germany, because as the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s go on through the Cold War, West Germany goes from a country which was in large part almost completely ruined by war back to the place that Germany has always occupied in the centre of Europe since the middle of the 1800s, which is as the economic centre point around which Europe orients. It becomes the once again the most powerful industrial nation in Europe. And how does this relationship between Germany and the US develop throughout the Cold War? And also, how does the US react to Germany's ambitions for the reunification of Germany? Because there are very different feelings, I think, amongst the European allies who can often sometimes, you read the writings of particularly the more conservative politicians in Europe, almost hysterical fears about what will happen when Germany reunifies, they'll go back to their old ways, they'll try and conquer Europe again, in comparison to what actually did end up happening, which is that Germany continued its political stance that it had occupied as the West German state. So how does the US's relationship with West Germany change and how does its view on German integration change as well? 
Well, I, I think in some ways, actually, the, the development of the American-West German relationship is surprisingly easy. Um, so that's not to say, of course, that there were moments of tension. Carter Schmidt famously had very bad relationships. There are <coughs> many crises along the way. But in some ways, and particularly sort of picking up on the contrast that you yourself have drawn compared to the relationship between a re-emerging Germany and some of its European neighbours, I think the Americans, perhaps because they are so much bigger, because they are so much further away, uh, perhaps because they don't have quite as much historical baggage uh, as, say, the French do, or perhaps the Dutch, um, cope with this remarkably well. Um, and you do see this, this kind of very clear, steady promotion of Germany from uh, an object of American power uh, of, of, uh, to uh, a, a partner, okay, a junior partner, but an increasingly important partner and, the, what some, uh, and a country that the Americans are prepared not only to do business with, but to remain quite close with. Now, I think this is oiled, aided and abetted by a whole series of things. I think it's aided by a, a, an enormous American pride in uh, the perception that West Germany is their own creation. Now, that, that in itself is a simplification, of course, because West Germany, for start, it's a merger of three zones of occupation. And of course, as any historian will tell you, the occupation is only a what, sort of four or five year period. And so fundamentally, the roots of what, what uh, Germanness are going to be there and they're not going to they be affected by that period of occupation. But, the, but if not, sort of, there's not a stunder null, not a year zero in 1945 beyond, beyond which Germany has no past. So, so Germany kind of reinvents itself, but the Americans at least have this kind of almost delusion that they created West Germany, that this was what we did. Uh, and therefore you tell the stories about the Berlin blockade, about the care packages, about the sort of the Americanization of, of West Germany. And the Germans in a way play into that, sort of the, the, perhaps because it's in their own interest to do so, the, America, the Germans too are very grateful. They are very conscious that the Americans were the most magnanimous of the victor victors, that they did play a, a really a really significant role, that they were much nicer than the French in particular, or than the Russians, that they are the nuclear protectors, et cetera, et cetera. So the Germans are sycophantic, would perhaps be putting it too strongly, but the Germans are, let's say, very tactful, very kind towards the Americans. They don't behave like the French. Indeed, they almost glory in the difference, the contrast with the French. So there's all the French are the awkward squad. The, the French are forever complaining about the Americans, whereas the Germans are always saying sort of calm it, sort of the Americans are on our side. They're good guys. They're basically with us rather than against us. So, so, the, the, so, so both sides of it, both countries in a way facilitate the relationship by wanting it to go well, which I think smooths the, smooths the process. But it is one where, where it, it is truly extraordinary how much uh, Germany is able, without breaking the system, to go from being an object to being a subject. Yes, there are brief moments of discomfort on the part of the Americans with the Brandt era Ostpolitik. There are some American politicians who are uh, react who react against Brandt's uh, seeming independence of action towards the Eastern Bloc. There are some sort of dark echoes in corners of Washington about how this might be a return to a new independent, more threatening Germany. 
there are personal crises like the Carter-Schmidt relationship, which I mentioned before. You get the whole, um, you get occasional sort of resurfacing of controversies about Germany's past, the uh, the, the Bitburg um, controversy in the 1980s when Reagan is uh, is is sort of arranged to go and sort of uh, to attend a ceremony at a, a, a cemetery, which turns out to have some sort of SS officers or various unsavory types buried there, and so on. So you get kind of minor spats and problems but by and large this is actually a remarkably smooth relationship and of course that is fundamentally demonstrated by the United States roles role in the unification story uh, where it is absolutely clear that that um, the Americans and the Germans together work incredibly closely on the unification story um, now, depending slightly on who you read, which per, where you where you get your sources, you may tell a slightly more Washington-dominated or slightly more Bond-dominated story. But Cole and Bush work very closely together. Baker Genscher, again, uh, there is a, an interesting dynamic there. Both of them are in many ways pushing the Soviets, pushing Gorbachev in slightly different ways, but it's a very effective double act and it really help, helps make one of the great transformative moments of the Cold War or the end of the Cold War into uh, the peaceful change, the successful change that it turns out to be. So it, it turns out to be a very, very effective uh, uh, partnership and one that, that, that demonstrates how smoothly in a way this had developed throughout the, the Cold War. And again, the contrast is to be drawn with Europe, although it's also worth adding that the German unification episode, and in a sense, I would say this wouldn't I, but it is also a vindication of uh, the Americans' political support for the integration process and for the idea that you, you enable Europe to cope with the re-emergence of German power by creating a strong uh, unified Europe. Uh, and in some ways, that, that scheme, that idea, that vision, is tested by 1989-90. Uh, there are moments of wobble, um, notably the Strasbourg uh, summit of, of, of late 1989, but actually by and large it's vindicated by that. Sort of Europe is able to absorb a unified Germany in its midst, partly because Germany um, is so well integrated, is the good European that is so well integrated into a, an increasingly strong and emerging European framework. And so in some ways, the American vision of that is not purely an American vision, but it's certainly one the Americans had bought into in a big way is vindicated at that moment. I want to cover off on two more topics before we end today. The first one is, I think, a big political still today and historical focus of people in the United Kingdom, almost an obsession, if you, if you want it to be a bit unfair, is this idea of a special relationship between the United Kingdom and the USA. And my question is, did the USA see the relationship with the United Kingdom to the same degree of importance as people in the United Kingdom, and particularly politicians in the United Kingdom, saw that level of importance? And how did it change? I'm thinking of, obviously, you have a particular Churchillian relationship, then you go through a period of time where Britain is the sick man of Europe and is much less economically powerful than it once was, and then you move on to this renewed Thatcher-Reagan relationship, which is very, very close and very ideologically aligned with one another. So how important does the USA feel that the UK relationship is throughout the Cold War and how does it change? 
Um, now, well, I, that's again, a very good, very good question. Um, I, I suppose I should start off by saying that I suppose my starting point on this, but it's not necessarily the point where I end up, is that I'm a little bit of a special relationship sceptic, as it were. Uh, this partly comes from my European predilections and interests, but I've always found, got slightly frustrated with the endless British harping on about the importance of the special relationship, etc. Um, although I think anybody who studies the Cold War does have to acknowledge that there is something there. Uh, and in many ways, actually, the special relationship is a bit like the story of the West-West Alliance more generally, a story of uh, a relationship that proves its vibrancy and its vitality by its capacity to change. Um, it's clear that these early special relationship is forged on the realities of an incredibly close period of um, fighting a, a world war together. And the degree to which the political leaderships, the military leaderships, the intelligence communities of the two countries had been through, in a sense, this, this sort of crucible of wartime cooperation, that this endures for the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, that's really, really important. You can see that in something like Matthew Jones' special area of interest or nuclear cooperation, but you could see it in many, many other fields. So that was bound to change. That was always going to weaken as that period of wartime collaboration faded in memory, as that generation retired, uh, etc. And you were bound to move into somewhat different uh, periods thereafter. This is also, of course, a relationship that is changing because, as we've recalled in earlier parts of this conversation, this is a period where Britain is ceasing to be a major imperial player. It's, in a sense, retreating to a more regional role, although it never entirely retreats wholly to a European role, as perhaps our current situation reminds us. Um, but so it, it is a relationship which changes in all sorts of ways, and yet, actually, it continues to be remarkably resilient. It's remarkably resilient because I think it's in the interests of both sides for it to be resilient. So it's clear why the British want it to be uh, resilient, because if, if Britain is to make a claim to be uh, a leading power, uh, particularly once its empire goes, one of its strongest assets is its ability to, 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 move, to stay close to Washington, its ability to influence and to, to shape the American discussions, to, inter, inter, to, to, to inveigle itself, in a sense, into, the, into discussions within the United States itself. But the Americans, too, actually, I think, you have a, see, can see a utility there. It's useful for the Americans to uh, use the British as their voice within Europe. Um, at times within the management of an institution like NATO, it is very useful for the Americans not to have to take the lead on something, but to have a, a reliable partner, junior partner who can do that. In the, 40, in the four decades or so that Britain is also a member of the European Community, European Union, it's very useful for the Americans to have a, 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 a reliable voice within discussions in Brussels, etc. And so I think there is a, a utility to the Americans there that is important. But there's also an, a, a sentimental relationship. There are genuine 
there's a genuine facility of, of, of interaction that comes from a common language. There are ties in terms of the, the movement of uh, professionals, of university professors, of, 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 of experts of all sorts of business people across the two sides of the Atlantic. Now, as it, English becomes a global language and uh, where uh, you move towards a situation where all leading Italians or Germans or French are also totally fluent in English, uh, and are equally at home on both sides of the Atlantic, perhaps that too has slightly lost its special angle. And you can also say that as America pivots towards Asia, some of it, that some of those things have begun to, to fade also. But I, I think it's real. And, and the way in which, for instance, if you look at the evolution of the Conservative Party, which is something that I'm going to be dealing with a lot when I write my book about the, the, the sort of it's not just a book about Brexit, but it's a story about the beginning, middle and end of Britain's membership of the European communities. One of the things that I'm going to have to deal with is how the Conservative Party changes and becomes the sort of the, the, the seedbed of, 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 of Brexit, of Euroscepticism. One of the factors going on there is the way in which the Conservatives are increasingly drawn into a, a, a political universe which is close to the Republicans in the United States, rather than the Christian Democrat parties uh, of, of continental Europe. So, so there are ways in which that special relationship exists that I think even as a special relationship sceptic, I would be forced to concede is important. Um, but what I would slightly sort of challenge is the idea that yes it's a special relationship but it certainly is not the only bilateral relationship that matters in transatlantic relations and i think in many ways one of the fascinating things for me is the way in which the americans as the uh, western hegemon during the cold war uh, do have relationships perhaps let's not use the word special but distinctive relationships with multiple other countries. They have this tight bond with Germany that I was discussing before, based on this kind of fond delusion that we created you. They have this rather spiky relationship with the French, but it's actually quite a creative spiky relationship. They both, in a sense, love to hate each other, but the, 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 it's quite, uh, it's like one of those couples who, who spend their whole marriage or courtship arguing but somehow the arguments are part of what makes the relationship exciting and, uh, uh, and, and, and makes it work. There's a special bond of a sort with Italy too. So there are all sorts of American relationships with European powers and I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about studying the West-West alliance in its totality is precisely understanding how these different relationships interact with one another, there is a rivalry there, there is competition there, there is jealousy there. One of the things I think that is going on in the mid-1980s, one of the things that makes German unification really tough for the British, is not just simply the British are scared of Germany, which to a certain extent certainly Thatcher is, but it's also that they are scared that the Americans are getting too close to the Germans. Um, sort of Thatcher feels excluded, sort of her friend Reagan and her friend Bush are now going off and being all pally with Cole who she can't stand. Uh, and so these kind of intra-Western rivalries are some of the things that add spice and interest and colour to, but also I think in the end, genuine resilience uh, to the West-West relationship. And this ties on to the, the final topic that I want to cover. A really telling moment of that relationship 
It's being done by uh, Dorian over at Cambridge, some new work they recently presented at LSE, which was looking at the archives and they Thatcher throughout the 80s when discussing the nuclear deterrent and trying to calm people's fears was saying, don't worry, we have a special relationship with the United States. They need to ask us to have some sort of joint permission that we can launch a joint nuclear strike. And the USA is frantically behind the scenes telling Germany, please do not tell the British that we have the same agreement with you because they think we have some sort of special agreement that only applies to the United Kingdom and the USA when actually it applies to the United Kingdom and Germany as well. But the, the US clearly at least recognises that the UK cares about thinking that it has a special relationship and that it would harm them diplomatically for Thatcher to find out that they've, they've broken the, the same deal with the Germans as they as they have with uh, with the United Kingdom. And I think, sorry to interrupt there, but I, I, do, I do think this is quite important because it, it highlights one of the strengths that I think the Western alliance ultimately has, that this is interaction between democracies. And therefore, in a way, all of them understand the lies that you need to tell to keep democratic politics going. And so an American president knows that every one of his European interlocutors wants to go back home and tell a lovely story about how they're particularly close to the Americans and how while they were there, they were in the Oval Office and they were confiding uh, or, or they were they went off to Key Largo together or Camp David or wherever it was. And, and the Americans acquiesce in this. They know there's a load of absolute cobblers told uh, <laughs> in, in this and that there's in many ways this is a total distortion. But their democratic politics politicians they know that's the rule of the game they know that's how you get elected or re-elected and so they acquiesce in this and that gives a flexibility a kind of that that in a way the the non-democratic structures of the eastern alliance bloc never have because because the, the, the it, it just allows it, it sort of softens the edges of this sort of the, these white white lies if you want sort of oil lubricate the alliance in a way that doesn't happen east of the iron curtain the final topic I wanted to cover was this idea of a European nuclear deterrent, because I think there are two interesting aspects of this, which is what did the USA think of the idea of the European countries having their own nuclear deterrent? Obviously, they are very supportive of the UK's Polaris system, maybe less supportive of the French independent nuclear deterrent because they're more concerned that the French are less controllable, or stable or understandable actors as as the United Kingdom are. And then the second one is the major European-wide resistance by by large portions of the public to the staging of close and medium-range US nuclear missiles across Europe, which I think really took the US by surprise. They weren't expecting this level of, of pushback from the general public in many European nations in this opposition to, to these nuclear missiles, which expanded beyond what Nixon's might call peacenik types to conservatives concerned with independence and the average voter who was concerned that this could preempt a European, localised European nuclear exchange in which they would all die and the United States would effectively be fine. So how did the US feel about these independent nuclear programmes in the different countries? And then how did they react to that big pushback in the 80s from Europe of their uh, nuclear deterrence being staged there? Well, I think, so in the early phases, I think in many ways, America is relatively relaxed, perhaps surprisingly relaxed about uh, uh, about 
sort of nuclear proliferation to Europe. Sort of, there is a, a degree of reticence and anxiety, but if you look at some of Trachtenberg's West work on on what the on on American attitudes towards European quasi-control or de facto control of the nuclear weapons post staged in Germany, etc. In some ways, what surprises me is how is how liberal the Americans are, how, how far they are prepared to go in the direction of allowing the their European allies into that sort of inner sanctum of decision making, which is decision making about atomic power. In some ways, it speaks to America's early confidence in the Cold War that it, it feels so uh, dominant that it, it can allow the Europeans to have a little bit of a hold on, on, on nuclear weapons. Okay, they don't, they're not fully able to take the decisions themselves. It will be a while before either Britain or France has a meaningful independent deterrent, etc. But nevertheless, I, I'm surprised in a way, looking back at it, how, how liberal the Americans, how unconcerned the Americans are. And in many ways, the, the biggest concern is actually about the Soviet reaction. Um, when you get into the 1960s, and um, partly because of the exigencies of, of, um, of flexible response and the need to have a single decision making, a single decision maker who can graduate the response to the to the invasion sort of accordingly, that kind of forces them to centralise decision making. Um, that that is that, that so that that's a, 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 a sort of an internal Western dynamic that is forcing them to try and exercise a bit more control. But the other thing that is forcing them to exercise a bit more control as you move into the early sixties and why they have misgivings about French developing the, the French developing their nuclear program, but even misgivings about the ongoing independence of the of the UK. Um, deterrent. Uh, that is not just connected to this internal dynamic, it's also connected to a genuine fear about how the Russians will react were Germany to get the bomb. Uh, and there is a real perception that uh, that what you really need to be worried about in a Cold War circumstance is if the, if, if the Soviets feel that we're about to give the Germans the bomb, at that stage they will really they will react in a very dangerous and unpredictable fashion and this will be the ultimate provocation and if you look at some Kennedy's rhetoric in a way he's not worried about Germany having the bomb for itself he's worried about how that looks in the eyes of Moscow uh, um, and, and, and that's quite interesting so in the early period I, I actually think the American attitude is surprisingly liberal um, I think in the in the latter period it's very different um, but I don't think this is, I think in the latter period, it's not just about nuclear weapons as themselves. Um, I think the, the, the period that you were referring to, the way in which you get this huge explosion of anti-nuclear sentiment in, across Western Europe in, in, in the early 1980s, and this is something I, I remember personally, this was, I, I was a teenager in those years, and this was sort of for my generation, this was the great cause. If you wanted, uh, if you wanted to have a kind of agonized, uh, forceful debate in a school classroom, uh, you didn't talk about climate change or Brexit or something that you might do now, you talked about nuclear weapons um, and as I remember Bruce Kent coming to our school he was the leader of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and uh, I was the nerd who asked him the question about the double zero option or something because I was a kind of bit of a news freak in those days and used to uh, you used to know about this kind of stuff so anyway um, 
so it was a, a hugely uh, a lively issue. But I don't think at that stage it really is just about nuclear weapons. I think they become a symbol of a much bigger cultural divergence on the, between the two sides of the Atlantic about the shape of the Cold War. I, I do think the, the nuclear weapons debate, the, the protests about it, become in many ways the most visible political manifestation of this general transatlantic divergence about how the Cold War should be managed, which at the risk of massive oversimplification essentially involved an increasing perception on the side of the Americans as you move through the mid-1970s into the Reagan period from the 80s, that the Cold War needs to be fought by standing up to the communists and being tough on the Soviets and sort of standing firm and being strong with a, an ongoing European desire for detente. Uh, a, a belief that detente was a good thing, that the best way of managing the Cold War was to do business with the Soviets, quite literally. Uh, the Europeans are selling much more, doing much more trade with the Soviet Union than the Americans ever did. Uh, and that this is vital for a period where the European economy is not working particularly well. And so that trade with the Soviet Union is, uh, is, is genuinely needed, energy supplies, the gas pipeline and so on. There's a real divergence of interests there. Uh, and that is something that manifests itself in all sorts of levels of political disagreement between the two sides of the Atlantic. But I also think it's coming out on the streets, quite literally, in the form of these nuclear protests. Because for the Americans, what are these missiles there for? They are there to protect Europe. They are there to embody Western strength. They are there because the European leaders wanted them to be there. The Europeans had asked for these missiles to be deployed. But for the European publics, this is a sign of Western militarism, of Western recklessness, of Reagan's uh, tough guy policy towards the Soviet Union, and that this is a kind of dangerous policy that is quite likely to end up with dead Europeans. Um, and so there is a, there is a really heartfelt uh, difference of opinion there, but I think it is part of a bigger divergence rather than simply being one about nuclear weapons. But nuclear weapons are the kind of, they're, they're the, the, the eye-catching aspect of it. They're the, the most obvious manifestation. Um, sort of, you can have your, uh, what, 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 what were they called, the, um, the dead-ins, or the, these people where people would sort of lie down in the street and pretend to be victims of a nuclear attack or whatever. So you, you get these moments of theatre which you can't have when you're having an abstruse relationship about discussion about, say, gas pipelines. But nuclear weapons have that kind of popular appeal and popular horror. Uh, the fascination that, that other more esoteric aspects of alliance management doesn't don't have. But I think they, they do go to the heart of this much wider parting of the ways between Western Europe and the United States, which is again a moment of transatlantic crisis. But to return to the theme which I picked up on several points during this talk, um, which I perhaps should end on, is actually again another one which is accommodated. Uh, once again, this turns out to be a profound, important, painful uh, difference of opinion that actually can be resolved, can be lived with, and in some ways ultimately ends up with a pretty good double act. And if you're looking, about the, uh, looking at Western policy towards the Soviet Union in the final stages of the Cold War, I think you, or not the very final stages, but the kind of early 80s and the penultimate phase of the Cold War, I think you can talk about a really rather effective if unintentional, 
um, European-American double act with the Americans being the tough cop and the Europeans being the soft cop. And just as in a good police movie, that tends to be an effective way of interrogating somebody. Actually, the interaction between the tough cop and the soft cop is pretty effective when it comes to dealing with Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And so it's, it wasn't a deliberate plat ploy, but in a way, even that worked. Even that moment of crisis was turned from a potential moment of weakness, from a potential source of Western fracture, into another winning weapon in the Cold War formula. I think that's a great place to end on. I think it reinforces a lot of the themes that we've had of the episode and that I'm always talking about on this podcast, which is the idea that these minor powers, that they are often driven by their own policy objectives and that there are very rarely a hegemonic consensus within uh, these alliances that made up the Cold War. And even within individual countries, there was always popular pushback and support for the alliances that split the general public about the way in which they felt about the Cold War and how it should be fought and how it should be continued and I think that's always something that we should keep in mind to continue our nuanced understanding of the Cold War. So thank you so much for joining us Piers. You talked a little bit about a book that you have coming up that you're working on. Is there anything that you want people to know about any projects you're working on that you want the public to know about before we sign off? Well um, it is a book that I hope to write over the next few years although being head of a department is a is fantastic way of not writing uh, stuff at the moment so it's not advancing as quickly as it ought to but yeah the book that I am writing uh, will hopefully finish within the next five years is a study of Britain, Britain's sort of troubled 46 years of membership of the European community. So I want to go from 73 through to 2016. But in a sense, what I want to do is I don't want to just write a book about Brexit. It's got to be much more than that. It's got to be a book that actually talks about the constructive aspects of this engagement, that talks about the good points as well as the bad points of this marriage, to use that tired metaphor, um, and, and to show how actually there were some really quite constructive moments. There were moments of even of British leadership of the European integration process, and how the very reason that Brexit has been so divisive and so traumatic for people on both sides of the channel has been precisely that there were big winners in both Britain and continental Europe from Britain's engagement with the process. And it is those people who were winners who, of course, are now uh, very distressed because of the way in which that is being taken away from them. And, and that's why it's been so painful, but also why it will be so fascinating to watch how the situation evolves over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, Piers, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore IR theory. Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube and the LSE iPlayer. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsumelish and this has been the LSE Cold War Podcast.